Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our epic series about the evolution of media, of recorded media uh, specifically, and our relationship with it and how that has changed over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I started with the earliest days of consumer media, stuff like wax cylinders. By earliest days, I mean like media you could play back and experience, not stuff like sheet music or, or written plays or things like that. And we're going to be leading all the way up to today's streaming formats in this series. And in our last episode, I covered the birth of the video cassette, and I talked about the very early days of the compact disc. But I want to focus more on CDs in this episode because they are very important. Uh, they played a big part in sort of the, the transformation of music. So in order for us to understand the era of digital files and then eventually the the uh, migration to streaming services, we have to understand more about CDs. And I talked a bit about the development of the CD standard, the compact disc st- standard, and the uh, the format of the compact disc in that last episode, and how the audio CD debuted on the market way back in 1982. But I should give a bit more background on some of those standards. Uh, I mentioned that the alleged reason that compact discs measure 12 centimeters in diameter is because an executive at Sony felt a single compact disc should be able to fit a full recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on it. Sony had partnered with the company Philips on developing this compact disc standard, and Philips owned a subsidiary, uh, and it was Polygram Records. So Polygram Records is a music label, and the longest recording of Beethoven's Ninth that was in Polygram's catalog was 74 minutes long. So to fit 74 minutes of audio on a compact disc using the standards they had arrived at would require a disc of at least 12 centimeters in diameter. Now again, I said at the beginning of all that allegedly because sometimes these things just turn out to be legends and not actually true. And I honestly don't know if that legend is true or not. It may well be. I hope it is. It's kind of a cool little way of uh, saying that's why CDs are the size that they are. Now, it wasn't just music that determined that size, right? It wasn't just the fact that Beethoven's uh, symphony is 74 minutes, because why did 74 minutes take up that much space as opposed to less space or more space? Well, the sample rate and the bit encoding played a big part in that. So sample rate refers to how many times you measure something, how many measurements you're taking per unit of time. And in this case, with audio, uh, we're talking about measuring some sort of level of audio energy per unit of time. Frequency is typically what we're talking about. So the more times you sample audio per second, the closer the recording will resemble the original audio. And each sample has a certain amount of data associated with it. The more samples you take per second, the more data you're going to have to represent whatever it is that you've measured. So with audio CDs, Sony and Philips decided on a sample rate of 44.1 kilohertz. That's 44,100 samples per second. So why 44.1 kilohertz? Why arrive at that number? Was it arbitrary? Well, no, it has to do with something called the Nyquist rate. So Harry Nyquist was uh, an electronic uh, engineer, 
and he studied signal processing. And his work was what prompted the adoption of the term Nyquist rate and Nyquist limit. Uh, so this explains a, a, a phenomena. It says that for any finite bandwidth signal, you need to sample the signal at twice the frequency range of that signal in order to capture all of the information represented within it. So if a signal's frequency, let's don't worry about audio, just say that you've got some sort of signal, and you say you've got a frequency that ranges from 10 kilohertz to 60 kilohertz. The full range of frequencies there is 50 kilohertz, right? 10 to 60, that's a 50 kilohertz range. To sample that bandwidth and to get all the information that is associated with that signal so that you're not losing anything, you would need a sample rate of at least 100 kilohertz. That's twice the frequency range. The, the range was 50. You double that, that's 100 kilohertz. That's your Nyquist rate. But how do you come up with a single standard sampling rate for all audio recording? After all, a, a complex, nuanced piece of music that has a lot of very low-pitch, very high-pitch music in it could have a much greater range of frequencies than a simple pop song. And, and that's not me putting down pop music. I happen to love pop music. But how do you apply one set of rules to all music? Well, Sony and Philips engineers agreed on 44.1 kilohertz because we generally say that the range of human hearing goes from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. So in other words, any sounds that have a frequency below 20 hertz are too low pitch for us to hear, and any sounds with a frequency higher than 20 kilohertz are too high pitched for us to hear. So a CD's sample rate is 44.1 kilohertz to be able to capture all the perceptible information in an audio piece with a little bit of wiggle room. But that's just part of the picture. Sure, we're, we're measuring audio at 44,100 times per second, but another thing we have to think about is how detailed are we getting with those measurements? Sony and Philips decided on a 16-bit audio bit depth. That gives us 65,536 possible ways to describe the audio energy in a sound file. So in other words, you have that many degrees to describe the sound in, in terms of its frequency. And uh, the, obviously the more degrees you have, the more precise you can be with that measurement. So it's pretty precise. It's, it's not, you know, it's not flawless, but it's pretty precise. Now, if we do a bit of math, we see that the bit rate, or amount of information we need to describe the audio, ends up being 1.35 megabits per second. Now, that's megabits, not megabytes. Remember, a bit is a single unit of information. It's either a zero or a one, whereas a byte is a collection of eight bits. Okay, so 1.35 megabits per second is what we get for 16-bit audio sampled at 44.1 kilohertz, or CD quality. That means a minute of stereo audio ends up being about 10 megabytes of information storage space. So the amount of data per second coupled with the total storage time is what dictated the CD form factor. Also, these were standards for consumer compact discs and compact disc players. In the professional audio world, the sampling rate for recording and duplicating tends to be 48 kilohertz or higher, and that generates way more data per second than the lower sampling rates. But that was for the professional 
processing as opposed to consumer-grade CDs and CD players. Also, this is a really good reminder that digital formats are inherently different from analog formats. In analog, you don't slice up the audio energy levels like you do with digital. It's sort of a, a seamless experience, at least to human perception, it's seamless. So with digital, you're taking what seems to be a smooth, unbroken sound, and effectively you're chopping it up and describing it at each instance uh, for a certain number of instances per second, 44,100 in this case. But these sections are so small that to us, to our perception, it doesn't really sound chopped up at all. At least if, if you're doing the whole thing correctly, it doesn't sound chopped up. Still, this approach meant that audiophiles who swear by vinyl would often reject the very concept of digital music. There are those who argue that because CDs have a sample rate at all means they cannot possibly capture all the information of an audio performance. And while you might say, that the sounds not captured might be outside the range of human hearing, they might somehow shape other sounds in the recording in ways that aren't replicable in digital formats and only happen as we actively listen to analog music. So the sounds we can't hear might affect sounds we do hear, but if those are never captured on digital recording, if they are blocked from being recorded, then we'll be hearing something we weren't meant to hear. On top of that, if there are frequencies that are greater than the Nyquist rate, those frequencies are attenuated and end up being at a lower frequency than they should, which is called aliasing. Aliasing is a real problem, and so to address that, engineers designed analog-to-digital converters, or ADCs, and they incorporate a low-pass filter. The idea is the filter kind of acts like a, a bouncer at a nightclub. If a frequency in an analog audio source would be higher than 22.05 kilohertz, which is the Nyquist limit for CDs, since it's half the Nyquist rate of 44.1 kilohertz, then the filter doesn't let that frequency through the converter. It says, sorry, sorry, you're too high-pitched. We're not letting you in. That information uh, never makes it to the recording, in other words. It gets blocked. Now, if the ADC is well-designed and really well-implemented, the recorded audio shouldn't really be affected in that case. But early ADCs were a bit primitive, and sometimes they could degrade audio quality, giving music lovers ammunition in the vitriolic analog versus digital debate. And I'll probably touch on audiophile objections now and again through the rest of this series, but let's get back to information storage. You store information on CDs in the form of little pits. And, and flat sections, really. And a CD player has a laser that scans across the surface of the CD, and it detects these pits or the smooth sections. And these are very, very small features on the CD. On a casual glance, you would never see them. You would really need to look super close, like with a microscope, to be able to see them. And these sections on the CD represent zeros and ones, the, the binary digital information that the player will decode and then interpret as audio. On top of that, the laser starts from the inside edge of the CD and works outward in a spiral. It's sort of the reverse of a vinyl album. So if you wanted to listen to a, a full vinyl album, you would put the needle or stylus on the outer edge of that album. And as the record turns on the turntable, the stylus makes its way down the spiraled path of the groove slowly moving toward the center of the record until it gets to the end of that side. CDs go the other way. The laser positions itself near the center for the beginning of the album, 
and then slowly moves outward toward the edge as the album continues to play. The music industry's response to the introduction of this technology wasn't immediately overwhelming. Music studios thought was interesting, but a lot of the retail establishments kind of resisted. Uh, They expressed some reluctance, and they gave a lot of different reasons for their pessimism. One perceived shortcoming was that CDs are much smaller than vinyl records, and that meant they might more easily be stolen. So there was a worry about shoplifting, that these these CDs, because of their form factor, you could probably shove one under your jacket and casually walk out of the record store and no one would be able to notice, whereas vinyl albums took up more space. It was harder to, to get away with that kind of stuff. Now, one of the ways that some retailers tried to fix this perceived problem was in the packaging. See, Polygram, the division over at Philips, had come up with what would become the standard CD case, also known as the jewel case. The purpose of the case was to protect the reflective surface of the CD. That's the side that actually contains all the information on it. And the case is needed to hold that CD in place so it didn't slide around because it could potentially get scratched up if it slid around. And the case needed to be fairly inexpensive to produce because otherwise it was going to add to the already premium price of a compact disc. The original jewel cases were thicker than the ones that would come on later, and the original ones were less likely to break. They were much more resilient. But as competition drove companies to find ways to cut costs, many would take liberties with the design of the jewel cases and make them with less plastic material, make them uh, thinner and uh, less sturdy. In North America, retailers would put these CD jewel cases in what were called long boxes. These packages were 12 inches in length. That's about 30.5 centimeters. This was way longer than a jewel case was, but it meant that the boxes could easily fit in the displays that had previously held LP vinyl records because that was about the same height as a vinyl record sleeve. So long boxes required special art, or they were in generic white boxes that had sort of a a clear panel that would allow you to see the cover art on the jewel case that was inside the box. Uh, The boxes were also harder to hide under a jacket or something, so they were thought of as a sort of theft deterrent strategy. But they were also really wasteful, and after pressure from several different fronts, including artists and consumers and environmental uh, advocacy groups, It forced the industry's hand, and the long box said farewell, and retailers focused on selling CDs that were just in the jewel case, albeit with other anti-theft measures put in place in in order to, again, deter that shoplifting. One retailer said that the smaller size might actually make consumers feel like they're not getting enough for their money, which I personally find pretty funny, since most people I, I know weren't thinking about the physical media so much as the experience to listening to the music that was stored on that media. And there was a reluctance to invest in a technology that would require retailers to double up on their inventories because they would have to carry both vinyl records and CDs, uh, or later on, cassettes and CDs. That was something that the retailers were forced to do as cassette tape sales grew beyond vinyl sales. They, they were supporting vinyl and cassettes, and then some were even doing vinyl cassettes and CDs all at the same time. I was a kid in the 80s, and I was completely unaware of CDs until very late in the 1980s. I always thought music was essentially available either on vinyl albums or, and this was way more common, the cassette tape when I was a kid. That's largely because when CD players first came out, They were incredibly expensive, prohibitively so for my budget. 
So when we come back, I'll talk a little bit about what the earliest CD player was like and how much it cost. And then we'll talk more about the evolution of the compact disc as a, as a medium itself. But first, let's take a quick break. All right. So I left off talking about how the first CD players were really expensive. Let's look at an example. The first consumer CD audio player to hit the market was Sony's CDP-101. That retailed for $900 as the base model. It was an even grand if you wanted to get the unit that had a remote control, a little infrared remote control you could use. Adjusted for inflation, that would be the same as about $2,300 to $2,550 today, just for a CD player. Not like a, a full stereo system with speakers and everything. The CDs themselves cost about $30 a piece, which, again, if we adjust for inflation, is today about $76. So just imagine that. Albums costing more than $75 bucks a pop. You'd really better like that band before you plop down the cash for their latest album. I found a review for the CDP 101 player online, which uh, revealed some other interesting tidbits. For example, the prototype model that Sony had shown off earlier uh, played discs vertically with the playing surface parallel to the front of the player. The CDP-101 went with what would become the more traditional orientation for most CD players with a horizontal tray that would slide out to accept a CD before sliding back into the player. The review also went into how the CD would allow you to do things that you couldn't do with other types of recorded media and allowed you to, to skip to specific tracks or sometimes they called them bands on the CD. Not bands as in musical bands, but bands as in bands of, uh, of recording. So track one, track two, or band one, band two. It made it really easy to select a specific passage or song on the CD. And it also, uh, the review marveled at how you could quickly skim through a track and you could hear a sped up version of the music as you were going through, either fast forwarding or rewinding. But while it was sped up, it didn't increase in pitch. You know, if you increase the, the rotational speed of a turntable, then the pitch of the record increases as well, something that led to never-ending hours of entertainment when I would put a 33 RPM record on a turntable but switch the turntable to 45 RPM so that everything sounded like it was sung by the chipmunks. You really haven't listened to Pink Floyd's The Wall until you've listened to the chipmunks sing Pink Floyd's The Wall. Anyway, that didn't happen with CDs because it was in a digital format. It wasn't an analog signal that was being sped up and with the pitch increasing. It was literally just skipping through the digital file. So you would get this sped up uh, effect, but the pitch remained the same. Uh, another option that the review mentioned was the option to play a track on repeat Apparently, that merited special mention because it's, again, something that you could not easily do on vinyl or cassette. Uh, you could do it. Like, if you listen to a, a particular track on vinyl, after that track is finished playing, you could get up, walk over to the turntable, gently lift the stylus, gently move it back to the beginning of that track, drop it back down, and listen to it again. Cassettes were worse because you had to 
push stop, hit rewind, push play, find out where you are in the track. Maybe you've gone too far. Maybe you haven't gone far enough. Adjust that way. CDs made it so much easier. You could just hit a little button and it would repeat the song you liked as many times as you wanted until you got tired of it and you told it to stop. If it happens to be Baby Shark, you might just leave it on for weeks at a time for your child. Anyway, the CD player really started to get popular in Japan pretty quickly, and Europe followed not too long after that. It took longer to get traction in the United States, and part of that was just logistical because the manufacturing facilities for the players and for the CDs were all in Japan, and those facilities were already chugging away to meet domestic demand. That left very little breathing room to produce units for the U.S. market, and in fact, in the beginning, there were only two manufacturing facilities in the entire world that were making compact discs, and they were each owned by Philips and Sony, and that price was a really big barrier, too. Like, not a lot of people were willing to jump in. There was a limited number of, of material out there for the players, and they were really expensive. Meanwhile, cassettes and records were relatively cheap. It would take some time for the price to come down for CDs to start to gain on cassettes. But boy, howdy, when it happened, it happened big time. The demand for compact discs in Japan led to more investment in the industry, and soon there were six manufacturing facilities, and not long after that, it grew to 40 manufacturing plants that were churning out compact discs. The technology was gaining momentum, and with the increased output came improvements in manufacturing with more efficient processes, which led to a steady decrease in manufacturing cost, which meant companies could sell their products for less money while still maintaining a profitable business. This in turn led to wider adoption of the technology in general. And this is how new tech typically works out if it's new tech that, you know, actually works and has an appeal to a customer base. The early versions are really expensive and sometimes prohibitively so for much of the intended market. Then you get early adopters. If you have enough of those jumping on, they're able to demonstrate that there's a demand for that technology that merits additional investment. The investment means that You've paved the way for the rest of us to get a chance to join in once those price tags are more in line with our own personal budgets. So I'm thankful for early adopters. Um, I don't quite make the money to be one, most of the time anyway. In the first year of sales, Sony sold 20,000 CD players, which is not an, an enormous number, but it was significant for a brand new technology that was going head to head with vinyl and the emerging cassette market. And other companies besides Sony and Philips began to make players as well. And it's here that I mentioned that the first CD title, according to some sources, wasn't ABBA, nor was it a symphony, but was rather Billy Joel's album 52nd Street. Uh, In the last episode, I mentioned ABBA and classical music were the first albums pressed to CD. Other sources call Billy Joel's album 52nd Street the first CD album. Uh, And then The Guardian says the first album recorded specifically with the CD medium in mind was Dire Straits' uh, Brothers in Arms in 1985. So it may well be that all of these are true to some extent, that ABBA and the symphony were pressed to CD, um, that 52nd Street was, uh, it, it debuted, and then one of the formats it debuted on was the CD, and that Brothers in Arms came out specifically for CDs and was engineered for that purpose. Maybe that's what it all means. All I can tell you is that history tends to be complicated, 
And there are a lot of stories out there that at least on first glance seem to contradict each other. Well, in 1983, the music industry racked up $16.7 million in CD sales. Uh, That's a lot of cash, but vinyl albums were bringing in $1.9 billion that same year. So nearly $2 billion uh, compared to CDs at $16.7 million. Cassette tapes were not that far behind vinyl in 1983. And the following year, in 84, cassette sales surpassed vinyl and kept going strong and CDs were laying the foundation for future success. So this is what kind of set the the tone, at least in the United States, for vinyl to go on the decline, cassettes to rule the 80s, and for CDs to be well-positioned to take over after that. Sony even tried to get a jump on portable CD players in the very, very early days of the technology. Back in 1979, Sony had released the Walkman, the portable cassette player that was a popular accessory in the 1980s. Just watch any comedy from the 1980s or set in the 1980s and you'll likely see one. You know, like Back to the Future. It it factors into the plot in the original Back to the Future. Anyway, by the mid-1980s, Sony was trying to replicate the success of the Walkman with a CD player. And the result was the Discman D50, the world's first portable CD player. And while the D50 had some shortcomings, it truly was an amazing technological achievement. See, the D50 was small. It was about the size of maybe five or six CD cases stacked on top of each other. So that meant all the circuitry and all the components of a full-size CD player needed to be shrunk down to fit this tiny form factor. And this was just a couple of years after the full-sized version of a CD player had come out. So it's hard to explain exactly how challenging this was. But here's an example. The optical path for the laser was a huge obstacle. To work around the size constraints, Sony engineers had to figure out how to fold the optical path to make enough space for it to have the laser position in the right way for the disc. On top of that, the engineers had to custom build all the circuits for the D50 to both fit inside this small case and not immediately drain the batteries of all their juice. Even so, the D50 was a pretty power-thirsty gadget. As Walkman Central, a fun website, has explained, you could buy a battery holder that would plug into the D50 to supply the electricity you would need to jam out to your tunes, And one version was called the EPB-9C Battery Pack. And it would hold either six C-cell batteries, uh, sometimes called U11 batteries in Britain at that time. They are about two inches in length and about an inch in diameter. And another option was a big, bulky, rechargeable battery that would plug into the EPB-9C. And you would put the D50 inside this battery pack. It sort of acted like a protective case and then you would wear the whole thing with a shoulder strap. So technically, the system was portable, but it was kind of portable in the same way that the earliest portable phones were portable. You wouldn't want to go jogging with one. On top of that, this was before companies had developed anti-skip software technologies that could keep a CD player on track, even if the player were jostled by someone jogging or a car hitting a bump on the road or something. So moving around while listening to music might also mean hearing some skipping as you did so. Uh, It wouldn't be until the mid to late 90s that that technology would start to make these portable systems much more viable. And by then, 
the ending of the CD era was already on the horizon. The D50 also was marketed as a more affordable compact disc player. It didn't cost nearly as much as the CDP-101, which, if you remember, retailed for $1,000 if you wanted the version that came with a remote control. The D50 came in at a budget price of just $350 in 1984, which is still admittedly pretty expensive. In fact, if we in, in adjust it for inflation into 2019 dollars, that's about 856 bucks for a portable CD player. By 1987, CDs were accounting for more than 1.5 billion dollars in sales. Cassettes were still leading the pack, but CDs were now outperforming vinyl records at that time. So, compact discs uh, ended up catching up to and then passing vinyl record sales. Although you could argue that the vinyl record sales were on the decline not from compact discs, but rather from the domination of cassette tapes. In 1990, the last year that cassettes would outperform compact discs, the two formats were nearly neck and neck. Cassettes made up about $3.63 billion in sales revenue, and CDs were at $3.36 billion, so right behind. And in 1991, CD sales would outperform cassette sales, and it seemed like the compact disc would become the definitive medium for recorded music. But in truth, it would reign for less than a decade. Sales would peak in 1999 at around $15 billion. And those figures would take a very slight dip in 2000. And then every year after that, CD sales figures were on the decline. We'll go more into that in just a second. So Japan was going nuts for compact discs shortly after their introduction, uh, as well as a related technology, the mini-disc, which failed to get very much support in the United States. In Europe, compact disc sales began to pick up starting in 1985. Uh, Polygram, Philips's uh, music branch, was leading the pack in CD production with the partnership of CBS and Sony taking second place. Cassettes were still doing really well. Unlike the early days with compact discs, cassettes worked pretty well for car stereo systems and portable systems. You didn't have to worry about all that skipping. Plus, you could buy a blank cassette and you could record to them. And initially, you could not do that with compact discs. It wasn't until 1988 when uh, companies started to develop the compact disc recordable or CDR format. And even then, it wasn't available on the consumer market. It took a few years for the tech to make its way to that market. It was available for professional use as early as 1991, uh, Pioneer would go on to introduce a CDR for the consumer market in 1996. The earliest CDR drives were slow. Uh, it took sometimes hours to burn data to a CDR, whether it was music or anything else. And because of other technological limitations, primarily how computers at the time were not super well suited for dealing with really large file sizes, the quality of burned music in the early days, if you were using a consumer CDR, typically was lower than what you would get from a pre-recorded CD from a store. Still, the introduction of a writable disc meant that the CD was starting to catch up to all the benefits of having a cassette. And it also set the stage for the introduction of the CDRW, or rewritable compact disc, in which you could not only record to CD, but you could also erase and re-record to it. Philips introduced a CD recorder for CDR and CDRW formats in 1997. And you could say that this also helped set up the CD for its eventual decline. As CDs became more popular, 
displacing cassettes, which in turn had displaced vinyl records. The music industry was, well, was dancing in the streets, I guess, so to speak. Sales were great. The industry was making more money than ever before. $15 billion in 1999. That's an enormous amount of money. But part of that was due to what some other people would call false flags. People weren't just buying new albums. They were also repurchasing albums that they had already owned in other formats, like on cassette or vinyl. Then they would go out and buy the CD version. And so while sales were great, it wasn't necessarily an indicator that newer work was doing better than any preceding medium. It's not saying that, oh, we're selling more new albums now than we were when we were selling cassettes or vinyl records. It was more that a lot of people were backfilling their music libraries by going through the catalogs of these record labels and repurchasing these albums. I've seen the same thing happen with tech stuff, actually. As new listeners discover the show, they tend to dip into the back catalog of episodes. And so my numbers will bump up a bit whenever that happens. But you can't count on that going on indefinitely. Eventually, those higher numbers will peak and then they'll decline. Now, if you're lucky, you can still see steady but probably less dramatic growth once things settle down. If you're not lucky, you'll see sales continue to diminish over time. And CDs would be not lucky. I'll explain more in just a second, but first let's take another quick break. One of the big reasons, or actually two of the big reasons why CDs weren't lucky, was a double whammy. It was in the form of computer advances and the development of audio compression file formats, primarily the MP3. We'll go into more detail about MP3s and other file formats in our next episode, but they definitely hurt CD sales as time went on. In 2000, the music industry saw a decline in CD sales, and every year after that, that decline continued and it got more dramatic. In an effort to fight off the inevitable, and also to combat piracy, as computers were getting better at ripping music from CDs and writing it to a different disc, companies began to incorporate digital rights management, or DRM, on their CDs. The idea was that this DRM would limit how you could actually use the compact disc. Sony's BMG music label did this to disastrous results. It's one of the, the big warning signs, warning stories of DRM and unintended consequences, or potentially unintended. Some argue that they were completely intentional consequences, which makes it even worse. So what was this all about? Well, let's say you go out and you buy an album that was from Sony's BMG label. And this is around 2005 or 2006. You buy this CD and you put it in a normal CD player. Well, it would work just the way it was supposed to. No problems there. You're just putting it in a stereo system or maybe your car or a little portable CD player, whatever. It works just fine. However, if you were to put it into your computer, either to listen to it or maybe you wanted to rip a copy so that way you had a backup, something like that, something else happened. There was some code on the disks that would prompt your computer to automatically install some software on your PC. The purpose of the software, at least the stated purpose, was to prevent someone from making unauthorized copies of that compact disc. In other words, to prevent people from pirating the music. But the software also opened up a backdoor vulnerability on the person's 
PC, meaning it was possible for a third party to infiltrate that computer and take control of it. Uh, in fact, essentially what was happening was the CD was prompting the computer to phone home to Sony BMG's servers and to give information about how the person was using that CD. What was their what were their listening habits? It was kind of spying on the consumer. And you could argue that the Sony BMG DRM software was behaving like malware, like a, a Trojan horse or a backdoor vulnerability. The discovery of the DRM led to class action lawsuits and a lot of pressure from the industry. And eventually Sony would stop the practice completely by 2007. Um, it was not a pretty picture. It was a very ugly story. Uh, and also, like I said, a warning, not just to companies, but to consumers that be aware that anytime you are introducing anything to your computer, there are the there are possible vulnerabilities you could be introducing. And in some cases, it could be really, really intrusive. So you got to be careful. Now, this is not to say that the decline of the compact disc was instantaneous, that the CD form factor went obsolete overnight. It stuck around for a really long time. In fact, it's only been fairly recently that some of the larger retailers have kind of moved away from selling CDs. In the winter of 2018, retailer Best Buy announced that it was going to stop carrying compact discs in its stores starting on July 1st, 2018. Target, meanwhile, went a slightly different route. They said they would continue to sell compact discs, but they would do it on cons consignment. So in other words, instead of ordering a large inventory of CDs and trying to sell them, uh, you know, paying for that inventory, trying to sell the CDs, and then if they didn't sell uh, stock, they would send it back to the, the studio for credit for future stock. Instead of doing that, now Target says, nope, here's how we're going to do it. We will sell copies of CDs, and for every copy we sell, we'll send a little bit of money back to the studio, but otherwise, we're not doing it. So if you don't want to work with us on that, you're not going to have your CDs held, you know, carried in our stores because people are buying so few of them now. And it puts the risk of inventory on the music studios rather than on Target's stores, and it just changes where the, the, the risk ends up falling. That change has continued, right? Uh, and really, you could say that the writing was on the wall by 2014 when digital music sales over the internet were eclipsing CD revenue. And even then, digital was on the decline. It was, it, it, it was already on the downward slope. It had peaked uh, at that point and uh, was, it was outperforming CDs, but both CDs and digital sales were starting to, to lag behind. Like I said a moment ago in our next episode, we're going to explore the rise of the digital file era, which leads into what we're seeing today with consumption moving more towards streaming services rather than downloading tracks or buying physical media. One thing I want to shift to before I end this episode would be the evolution of video media in the wake of the CD. The digital versatile disc, or DVD, evolved from the compact disc. It was effectively the second generation of the CD technology. Even as companies like Sony and Philips were trying to get the CD into the consumer market, they were simultaneously researching how to improve that technology in order to store even more data on it, including video with sound. 
That development would mostly happen behind closed doors for a little more than a decade among various companies. By the mid-1990s, there were two formats that had emerged from R&D departments. They weren't on the market yet, but they were almost ready. And one was with Sony and Philips. They had developed a technology that they called the Multimedia CD, or MMCD. Meanwhile, you had another group that was uh, including the Time Warner Group and Toshiba, and they had developed a different approach called the Super Density, or SD, disk. Neither side was eager to engage in an all-out format war, like the one that pitted Betamax versus VHS and fractured the market. Uh, So instead, they decided that they were going to work together to develop a common standard between them. And it was mostly based off the SD format from Toshiba. This became the DVD. And by 1996, companies were starting to produce DVD players, which uh, originally went on sale in Japan and then expanded from there. And like CD players, when they first came out, they were pretty darn expensive. But it actually, uh, the the path for DVD to hit widespread adoption, it, it happened much more quickly than CD players did. Like a CD player, a DVD uses a laser to read pits on the reflective surface of a disc. But the lasers in DVD players use a shorter wavelength of light than the lasers in CD players. A laser in a compact disc player emits red light at a wavelength of around 780 nanometers. DVD players were in the 635 and 650 nanometer range. The shorter wavelength meant that the pits on a DVD can be smaller than those you would have on a CD. So smaller pits means you can pack more pits in the same amount of space, meaning you can put more data on the disc. And that's why you can fit a full-length film on a DVD with audio using a compression format like MPEG-2, and a CD can't hold that much information. The DVD format brought with it improvements in picture and sound quality, and it also allowed for interactive features such as menus, chapter selection, commentary tracks, bonus footage, that kind of stuff. So it really helped set itself apart from the VHS form factor, the videotape. So the DVD format allowed consumers to navigate films more easily. So kind of a comparison between compact discs and audio cassettes, DVDs had the same advantages over video cassettes. Even when they were first introduced, DVDs could hold more information than a typical VHS tape, uh, unless you were, you know, using like a consumer video tape and you were recording at the slowest possible setting, meaning that you were using the least amount of tape to capture uh, video. It would result in the lowest quality video, but you would be able to put a lot of it onto a single tape. Well, DVDs could hold way more information than your your standard uh, good VHS tape. These DVDs were single-side, single-layer discs, but the format allowed for up to two recordable layers per side. So you would get a double-layer disc or even a a double-sided double-layer disc. With a double-layer disc, the reading laser can actually focus through one layer of data on a disc to see a second layer written underneath it. You can think of it almost like, imagine you've got two sheets of paper and you've used a very dark ink and the paper itself is is almost translucent. And you can read what's written on the top sheet and you can look through the top sheet and see what's written on the bottom sheet. Uh, Well, imagine you've got like some sort of magic x-ray glasses that let you read the bottom sheet as if if there was nothing 
you know, obscuring your view. That's kind of how a double layer DVD works. Uh, the single layer DVD can hold up to 4.38 gigabytes worth of information. A single sided double layer DVD can hold 7.95 gigabytes, not quite twice as much as a single layer DVD. So why is that? Why can a double layer DVD only hold a little less than twice as much? Well, it's because in order to avoid interference between layers, the pits on a double-layer DVD have to be slightly longer than they would for a single layer. So you can pack slightly less information per layer, thus it's not quite twice as much. If you have a double-sided double-layer DVD, you could store a whopping 15.9 gigabytes of information on it. Now that would end up being dwarfed by Blu-ray later on, but at the time it was incredibly impressive. The DVD caught on faster in the market than the compact disc did. It only took a few years before DVD sales were outperforming VHS. It was early 2002 when the DVD Entertainment Group broke that news. Video rental stores were starting to phase out VHS copies of the film. They were leaning harder on the DVD format themselves. And the writing was on the wall, despite the fact that even in 2002, there were more than twice as many households that had VCRs as those that had DVD players. There were 96 million households that had a VCR and 25 million had a DVD player. But people with DVD players were spending more, buying more films. So it was pretty much a sign of what was to come. This was also really good news to the movie and TV studios out there. And unlike VCRs, your standard consumer DVD player had no way of writing to discs. So there was no way to copy discs, at least not initially. There were computers that would get DVD-R drives, and you could invest in some specialized equipment to copy discs, but most people didn't have access to that. And in the early days, it took a long time to write a significant amount of data to a DVD, so studios had less of an adverse reaction to the DVD format compared to the VHS tape. They didn't see it as a threat to their business. On top of that, the industry's experience with VCRs had taught it the incredible value of the home market. They knew there's this market of consumers eager to buy up a catalog of movies. So they had already established that with VCRs, and they were able to apply that with DVDs. It gave these companies ways to monetize their back catalogs of films and television shows. So they leveraged that knowledge with the DVD format. And unlike the pre-recorded VHS tapes when they first came out, you know, those, those cost $80 a piece when they first debuted in the early 80s. DVDs were much more reasonably priced. They typically fell around the $20 range for a single film. The extras really helped too. They gave creators the chance to provide more insight into their work. Fans got way more material. They could watch a show or a movie with commentary to learn about what went into making it. They could hear about behind-the-scenes drama or challenges the makers faced when they were making their productions. Not every DVD contained that kind of extra, but enough of them did to create sort of an expectation among collectors. Uh, it also meant that sometimes a show that had gone off the air would come back because there'd be a demonstrable demand for that show. Uh, a big example of that is Family Guy. It was on Fox. It got canceled. The DVDs went on sale. The sales were really good, and it convinced Fox to bring the program back. The DVD also opened up opportunities for different versions of the same work. Ask any fan of a movie like Brazil, 
or Blade Runner or Evil Dead about their DVD collection, and you'll likely hear that they own several different copies of their favorite film. This created yet another way for companies to profit from their catalogs while simultaneously satisfying the insatiable demands of consumers. And yep, I own a few different copies of Evil Dead, so I'm one of those suckers. Anyway, like the VHS era, the DVD also created opportunities for independent makers to burn their works directly to disc, bypassing the studios and going straight to market. So the direct-to-DVD industry thrived as well. And some companies like Circuit City tried to launch a competitor to DVD. The Circuit City version in 1998 was called Digital Video Express or DivX, not to be confused by the codec that's the same name. A DivX player required a connection to a phone line. So each DivX disc had a barcode on it that the player would be able to read, and it could send information over the phone line to a centralized server, which kept track of all the discs on the network. If you purchased a basic disc, you would get essentially a license to view the movie within 48 hours. If you wanted to watch it after those 48 hours were over, you would have to pay for an upgrade to watch it for some more uh, viewing time, and even then it's just another two days. There was a pretty strong negative reaction from the home theater enthusiasts out there, and the format did not do well. In fact, it only took a year. By 1999, Circuit City pulled the plug on DivX. Now, in our next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the DVD industry and the lead-in to HD DVD and Blu-ray, which is really another format war we're going to talk about. We won't spend too much time on those formats because while they can pack more information on a disc than DVD can, they work on essentially the same principle. Then we're going to transition to digital files and streaming services to sort of conclude this series. Uh, if you guys have suggestions for other topics, whether it's something I should do a full series on or maybe just a standalone episode, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our older episodes, plus links to our social media uh, presence on there. So you can reach out to me on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, you can also check out our online store. We got some fun stuff in there. Go see that stuff and maybe buy some of it. Don't just look at it. Buy it because it goes to help the show and greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 